Thank you, Steve. This morning, we're still continuing our series in Church 101, and next Sunday, we will begin with several meditations about our Lord's incarnation. Um, but uh, today, we, we are continuing in this series, and our uh, topic today has to do with creeds. Aren't you glad you came? And by the way, we're also going to announce our new church building program. Or not. <laughs> Often we recite the Apostles' Creed and the, sometimes the Nicene Creed. And uh, what I want to do today, uh, and, and as we're going through this series, Church 101, part of what we're doing is we're, des we're describing to you the rationale for why we do certain things the way that we do them here at this church. And included in that, the history of how it came about. And also, as the elders have asked me to, to engage in this, or Lewis and me, as we are moving through the transition from me to him as the senior pastor, uh, they would like to bring in some reminiscences of, of these uh, years so, so that there's a, a, a record of those things before I kick off. So we're going to do, do some of that and, and uh, uh, try to explain a, a rationale for that. This is not an expository sermon today, which is what we try to do. But when we leave here today, I want three things for you. First of all, I want you to understand the reason why we do this, why we recite creeds on Sundays, many Sundays. Secondly, I want you to understand how this helps teach your family. So the, there's the why, there's the how, but also there's the so what. How, third, how this connects you to those in Revelation 7, 9, where we read about a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. So, uh, th this, what we are doing uh, is, is reciting a creed like reciting the multiplication tables. Because sometimes I think it can become like that. It can, do, do you, the question is, do you really believe this? And does it make a difference in your life? And does it provide guardrails of truth in your life? The word creed comes from the latin credo i believe a creed is a brief statement of faith that expresses sort of an irreducible minimum that all christians in all centuries across all continents across all cultures proclaim to be true this is massive historical consensus behind them you don't just throw those statements of faith away um, that with, and, and many churches have actually lost their biblical moorings with the slogan, no creed but Jesus. But do you have to affirm creeds in order to be a Christian? No. But you cannot deny them and be a Christian. And there's more. We also have a statement of faith that we require all prospective members to affirm publicly as they join. 
We ask three questions when people are standing up here, and the second of those three questions is, have you read and are you in agreement with the statement of faith of Signal Mountain Bible Church? So, we're going to talk about, first of all, the creeds of the Bible. Did you know that, that there are creeds in the Bible? And then we're going to talk about church creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Uh, and, and then we're going to talk a little bit about confessions of faith. And then finally, we're going to take a look at the Signal Mountain Bible Church Statement of Faith. And, and these statements have been a part of church life for 2,000 years. So it's important to know how we think about them. Now, first of all, I said, did you know that there are creeds in the Bible? Yeah, there are. The most famous creed in the Old Testament is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. And I'm going to ask you to repeat this with me. Would you read it together? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. And of course the passage says more than that. But teach what? These words. This is called the Shema. From the Hebrew word Shema, hear. Hear, O Israel. And it was recited by Jews daily. Why? Because it's a recitation of truth. In the New Testament, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Here's what he said. What commandment is foremost of all? Jesus answered, and listen to how he began. The foremost is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and so on. He quotes this. This is what Jesus refers to. And then he went on to the second part about loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the most, there are other creeds in the Old Testament, but that's the most famous one. Are there creeds in the New Testament? Absolutely. The simplest and the most foundational is this. Jesus is Lord. That's it. Jesus is Lord. But what does it mean? It meant much more than he is the sovereign God. You know the chorus, he is Lord, he is Lord. It means more than just he is my master. It means, it includes that, but it means that he is Lord in the Old Testament, Yahweh. So all the claims about the covenant God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament are true about Jesus. So that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Did you know that it occurs elsewhere? 1 Corinthians 12, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is Lord is key in both of those statements. Look at Philippians chapter 2. This is one of the, this, many New Testament scholars believe that this is one of the earliest church creeds, this whole section, verses 5 through 11 in Philippians chapter 2. And if so, that means that there's sort of a creed within a creed. Like, I'll show you what I mean. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, 
did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. This is the incarnation, folks. This is Christmas. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess, say it with me, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Here's another one. Paul calls this common confession. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Repeat it with me. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Can't you just hear that as an early church hymn? And, and you, most of your Bibles will mark it off like this. And the question is, do you believe this? Because this is deep truth. There are some other sayings in the first century church that believers would repeat. And they're found in letters. Guess who the letters are written to? To pastors. Who are the pastors? Timothy, Titus. Pastoral epistles, these are called trustworthy sayings. You ever run across that phrase as you're reading in the New Testament? King James puts, them, puts it this way, faithful sayings. In other words, these are bedrock truths that are regularly recited. 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy saying deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and then he, he, he explains how that applies to him. Among whom I am foremost of all. The Apostle Paul had no hesitation to place himself alongside the worst sinners saved by God's grace. This is a trustworthy saying. Now the next one may surprise you, but it fits well with our process of elder nominations that we go through here. 1 Timothy 3.1, it is a trustworthy saying. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work. He, he desires to do. Do you believe that? Do you believe in the importance of that in terms of the leadership of the church? Here's another one. 1 Timothy 4, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is, of little is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance so what he has just been saying is a trustworthy saying here's one more it is a trustworthy saying and i'd like for you to repeat this one with me if we died with him we will also live with him if we endure we will also reign with him if we deny him he also will deny us if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And then he says, remind them of these things. Now, this, this particular faithful saying, uh, trustworthy saying, uh, should sort of jar you a little bit because there's something off about it. Did you notice there's something off about it? It's a trustworthy saying, if we die with him, positively, 
a positive statement, we'll live with him. If we endure a positive thing, we will reign with him. Positive, 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 positive. If we deny him, he will deny us. That's in the, the, the sense of the denial of rejection, like Judas did. So negative, negative. If we are faithless, negative, and then the symmetry is broken. He remains faithful, positive. And here's the reason why. For he cannot deny himself. I love that explanation. I love these verses. And you'll notice here that doctrinal truth is more important than elegant literary symmetry. And in fact, the destruction of that symmetry highlights the reason why even more, and that is the faithfulness of God. So then Paul in, in, uh, concludes this or exhortation to them, remind them of these things, important stuff. You, the, the point is, you cannot escape the faithfulness of our God of grace. Is that good news? Here's another one. Titus 3, 4 through 8. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, not by any works that we do, by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. Everything he's been saying thus far, all that he that went before, this is a trustworthy saying. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So the Bible itself contains creeds, common confessions, and statements that the early church repeated and recited. But not only was that true of the earliest church, over the next centuries, the church was careful to guard against heresy. That's what Jude 3 was about. There were heretical things that were coming up, especially about the Trinity and about the person of Jesus, that creeds were meant to exclude they were meant to provide guardrails for believers to remain within biblical truth. So these creeds that developed over the centuries, they are not truth fossilized. They are truth crystallized. That's what we're looking at here. The Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles. There's no signature at the bottom with 12 signatories. Or, yeah, 12. Um, <clears throat> it was named for them you know why? Because it summarized the apostles' teaching. If you read through the early chapters of the book of Acts, the church was devoting itself to the apostles' teaching, the apostles' teaching, the apostles' teaching. And this is a distillation of that. Our earliest version of it dates from 215 A.D. And if you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, you notice that when we recite it, we leave out a phrase that others may include. We delete the phrase, he descended into hell. And the reason why, well, two reasons why. First of all, it's simply confusing. 
as, as, because many people say, oh no, Jesus went to hell and that's where he completed his saving work. No, he completed that on the cross. It is finished. The idea of he descended in hell, what that meant originally was that he, he was really dead. <laughs> he went into the place of Hades, the place of the dead. But the, so it's theologically confusing. Uh, the main reason why we don't include it, the second reason is that it was not in the earliest editions of the Apostles' Creed. It was added around 360 A.D. So it makes perfect sense for us to exclude that phrase. Now in the early church at baptism, when someone was baptized, the the statement they would most often make was from Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Later, an, an, another form of confession at baptism included that, but also the person who was baptized would recite the Apostles' Creed. How would you like that for our baptisms? Can you recite the Apostles' Creed? But that's what, that's what they did. And the Apostles' Creed has three main sections, one about the Father, one about Jesus, one about the Holy Spirit, and then some other remarks about salvation and the church of God. So we're going to uh, recite this together. And by the way, there, in your bulletins, there are copies of the Apostles' Creed. We'll use it up here. But there are copies of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed with a little bit of information about each on the back of those. Uh, let's recite the Apostles' Creed together. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This we believe. Do you believe this? And of course the term Catholic, the Holy Catholic Church, doesn't mean the Roman Catholic. It's, it's the word for universal, the universal church. We're a part of the universal body of Christ when we place our faith in him. The Nicene Creed was the next creed, the other one that we sometimes recite. In 325 A.D., the Council of Nicaea was convened by the Emperor Constantinople to, uh, for the church leaders to sort through some heresies about Jesus that had emerged in the empire. The main one was called Arianism modern-day form of that is Jehovah's Witness. It basically said that Jesus is not fully God. He was a created being. And Nicaea condemned that as heresy and affirmed what the church had always believed, that Jesus is, and here's one of the phrases, God from God and of one substance with the Father and the same with the Holy Spirit. And by the way, if you've ever read or seen the movie about the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, that's his retelling of the Council of Nicaea. I will make this comment. It is hard to imagine a more concentrated collection of historical misinformation. Mm. So here's the Nicene Creed. Sorry. I... 
the world does not have enough time for that. <laughs> the, the Nicene Creed uh, that we recite will not do that today, but uh, uh, it's in your bulletin here is uh, the first part of it, and then the second part focusing uh, on Jesus, and then the last part, very much like the, the same flow as the Apostles' Creed. So uh, here it is. Uh, let's read this together. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm messing with you. I put it in tiny font so that you could see uh, I could, you could see that the part in red is the part about Jesus. That is the part that they were making sure was clear that the church understood. Not everybody had Bibles. Not everybody had um, uh, theology books. Not everybody could read. But they could recite a distillation of the truth that would keep them from heresy. When Betsy uh, and I were in Greece... Uh, well, both times, some of the, most of the, I think most of the, if not all, of the evangelical churches in Greece have copies of the Nicene Creed on their wall. And the reason why is that the, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church affirms the Nicene Creed. And with that on the wall, it's, it, the v Greek Orthodox Church is very hostile to evangelicals. So, uh, with the Nicene Creed on the walls of the evangelical churches, they cannot be accused of heresy. <clears throat> um, the next council was the Council of Chalcedon in 451 that basically affirmed the decisions of Nicaea and clarified some more about the humanity of Jesus. And there are other creeds through the centuries, but these are the two that we... Uh, we, we recite. I like the Athanasian Creed. How many of you like that one too? Okay, good. I've got one. <laughs> I, I like it. It is so, it is so uh, detailed. <clears throat> it focused on the Trinity and on the two natures of Christ, <clears throat> the human and divine in one person. It's too long <clears throat> to recite. But I'm <clears throat> But I'm going to show it to you in a few pages real quickly, and I'm going to park on one page and read it for you so you can see the kind of thing, the kind of thing that, that, was, that was being done. <clears throat> uh, here's the first page. Now, this is the Catholic, you know, the universal faith, that we worship God in Trinity and Trinity and unity. And he for, goes forth. I'm going to read this page. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet, there are not three eternal beings, there is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, there is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. You got the picture? Very precise, very detailed about the attributes of God and about the Trinity and that's the Athanasian Creed. Augustine made this comment. Before you go forth, fortify yourselves with your creed. For its, word in, for its words are found throughout the divine scriptures and have been assembled and unified to facilitate the memory. Thank you, Emily. So, now, when did we start reciting creeds? 
I don't remember. I think it was about 15 years ago. Um, I'm not sure. The elders talked about it. We, we felt like it would be a good way to catechize or to teach the entire church, especially the young people in the church, that irreducible minimum of truth, because recitation of truth is a good thing. It's good for our children to know the Apostles' Creed. It's good for our children to know the Lord's Prayer. It's good for them to know many things. We, we are intentional about this with uh, what's called the New City Catechism that we've linked to you before. If you'd like to find out part of what we are teaching the children to catechize them in the truth. Now, before we move on, I want to make three observations about creeds. First of all, creeds unite believers. That's just a fact. They, when you can continue repeating the truth, uh, th this is essential uh, truth across the centuries, across the continents, across the cultures. We're not affirming something that's new here, but something that transcends time and space and culture. Uh, one of my dearest friends was Dr. Cornelius Oluwala, and he was a visiting scholar from Nigeria. He spoke here at the church a couple of times, and uh, he is, Cornelius is now with the Lord. Uh, I asked him one day uh, when we were eating lunch, how do you teach theology in Nigeria compared to how it's taught here? And it, to my surprise, he said, we teach it exactly the same way. Exactly. Except for one thing. Uh, he said, uh, when we get to the doctrine of Scripture, we spend a lot more time there than you do because of the challenges with the Quran. So it's the same truth. It's the same uh, Lord. It's the same word and and this was true last year when i taught honduran pastors in in honduras the truth is the truth every tribe every tongue every nation standing before jesus i believe saying jesus is lord creeds unite secondly creeds have a teaching function they distill they summarize they teach truth about god the father god the son god the spirit about salvation, about who we are, and about who we are in relationship to one another. And third, they provide a doctrinal function of guardrails against heresy. Jude exhorts us to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. And this is why. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. This is about heresy. Creeds set boundary markers. As one scholar put it, beyond which no Christian may safely go. The main thing is they just keep us tethered to Jesus. That's what they do. Uh, there's a lot of liberal theology uh, that has been propounded, uh, especially since the, from the 1920s on. And um, basically the, there has been a huge attempt to explain away biblical statements and and to redefine terms well creeds just won't let you do that easily jesus didn't literally rise from the dead he rose in our hearts or he rose metaphorically or symbolically creeds just won't let you do that in any intellectually honest way because they reflect the gospels they reflect first corinthians 15 they tether us to the historical jesus his identity his nature, 
his literal incarnation, his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension, and his future coming. Every historic creed of the church will not let you stray from him. About three years ago, I read the autobiography of Thomas Oden. He, is a, he was a liberal professor from Yale University who was teaching in the religion department uh, later at Drew University. And one of his colleagues, uh, one of his Jewish colleagues told him, Thomas, you do not have the right to be liberal. What do you mean? And his Jewish colleague challenged him, you do not understand your own faith well. You don't have the right to rebel against that which you do not understand. So he challenged him to go back and to read the scriptures. I'm sorry, to read the early church fathers along with the scriptures. And Thomas Oden did that to maintain intellectual integrity. He read the early church fathers, and you know what happened? He became a Christian. And he spent the next years of a long and distinguished academic career doing his best to slow the encroachment of liberalism in the United Methodist Church. He stayed there as a churchman. Uh, he was very unpopular at times. Um, but uh, he stayed faithful and was widely respected. He died almost two years ago. Here's one of his statements that is one of my favorite quotes. He said this, There is a fantasy abroad that the Christian community can have a center without a circumference. Since we gather around Jesus, it is argued, it is our center, not our boundaries, that matters. But a community with no boundaries can neither have a center nor be a community. A center without a circumference is a dot, nothing more. Without boundaries, a circle is not a circle. The circle of faith cannot identify its center without recognizing its margins. Defining heresy specifies the margins the limit, legitimate boundaries of the worshiping community. Or put differently, the Bible states what Christian doctrine is and the creeds guard against what it is not. Uh, I want to mention something else now and, and shift to this third category of, of confessions of faith. Are you doing okay? We doing okay? All right. Hang in there with me. What about the, this is a group picture that was taken at the Westminster uh, uh, Assembly. I want to say a few brief words um, about confessions of faith. Uh, there are, uh, you've, you may have heard of the Westminster Confession, the Belgic Confession, the London Confession, uh, and so forth. Uh, j just to overgeneralize, if you take a creed and stretch it out and, and, and make it really big, and include all doctrines, all doctrines within that creed, almost all doctrines, supersize it. Supersize a creed to include all doctrines uh, and make it about 200 pages. Usually during a time of ecclesiastical and political upheaval, you would have a confession of faith. Uh, they, they're, they tend to be more sectarian, like the Augsburg uh, Confession uh, for Lutherans, the Westminster Confession for Presbyterians, the London Confessions for Baptists, and the Belgic Confessions for Belgics. 
No, Dutch Reformed Church. So those, those are some of the best known uh, of them. And they are good documents. But they go beyond what Scripture says at times in ways to defend the particular beliefs of their particular church. And that's fine. Uh, there, there's just a very old joke about a man who was walking across a bridge and he saw another man who was about to jump off the bridge to his death. And he stopped him and he said, wait a minute, don't do that. The man said, why shouldn't, why shouldn't I jump? Well, there's so much to live for. Like what? Are you religious? Yes. Me too. Are you a Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, or Muslim? Christian. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Me too. Are you Episcopalian, Methodist, Presbyterian, or Baptist? Baptist. Me too. Wow. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are the original Baptist Church of God or the Reformed Baptist Church of God? Reformed Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you the Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879, or the Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? Reformed Baptist Church of 1915. And he screamed, die, you heretic. Well, here's my own generalization. As you move to, from creeds to confessions, the longer they are, the more detailed they get, uh, get into uh, details, the more likely they are to promote a system of theology that may contain inferences from inferences and be less biblical and then po become potentially more divisive now don't get me wrong doctrinal confessions are very important uh, and and some Christians go to the other extreme and complain hey you know life is complicated enough why add doctrine to all the complications of life just just give me Jesus well Thomas Oden would have something to say about that you cannot have a, a, a circle without a circumference. There's an old story of two friends who were walking under the stars. One was a theologian, the other an astrophysicist. And the astrophysicist said, you know, I think all of theology can be re reduced to this. God is love. And the theologian said, yes, and you know, I think all of astrophysics can be reduced to this. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. If it's just give me Jesus, at the first challenge, that's not going to stand up. I'm going to I want to explain something to you that has been behind my teaching and preaching in this church for the last 34 years. When, you, when you're looking at an expanded doctrinal statement, uh, like an expanded confession or a theology in detail, it's like packing a suitcase. I pack all my doctrines into the suitcase and then neatly close my suitcase. But what do I do if there are some biblical socks hanging outside my theological suitcase? What do I do with those? What do I do when they don't fit neatly? When there are statements in the Bible that are ignored 
Do I snip them off? Do I pretend that they don't exist? Or even worse, do I reinterpret them to say something other than what they really say? I think one of the worst things that we can do is at least don't nail down that suitcase. Don't nail that lid closed. No, what you do is you repack. And realize that God hasn't told us everything about everything. That's why I've said so many times that my best theology is nothing more than God's refrigerator art. You know, I, I'll write, <clears throat> write an article or something and, and run to him. Here, Lord, look what I did. And he'll look at it and, you know, that's a nice approximation of truth. And he'll pat me on the head and he'll love me for the effort and he'll put it on his heavenly refrigerator. But he may shake his head in sadness for all the things that were lost in the fall in my mental abilities or my understanding or apprehension of reality. The greatest of all realities of who he is. So, uh, confessions of faith are true and valuable to the extent that they accurately re represent the truth in God's word. Um, I, I'm amazed sometimes um, I was on an airplane to Salt Lake City I was sitting next to a nice young clean-cut man he was about my age back then I was a nice long, young clean-cut man this is I don't know 20 years ago okay I was never mind <laughs> and uh, this this man turned to me and he said uh, it was about my age he turned to me and said doesn't it, isn't it amazing that, why do you think that there are so many different denominations and they all disagree? Now, later on, I mean within the month, I picked up a book on Mormon apologetics. I, I should have been clued in. I didn't think about it at the time. Salt Lake City. <laughs> I was going to speak at Hill Air Force Base outside Salt Lake City. And... Uh, but it just didn't daunt, I just, my brain was in, different, was in a different lane. So with about a month later, I picked up a book on, on Mormon apologetics. And it was a book written by Mormons on how to convince Christians that Mormonism was, was true. And the first thing that they said was to ask this question, why do you think there are so many different denominations? Well, that's the question he asked me. I, when I saw that, I thought, oh my goodness, that was a question. And my response was, you know, I am amazed that with minds that are fallen, futile, and finite, we agree on 95% of everything. Isn't that astonishing? And that was the end of the conversation. I didn't know why then. But it really is amazing. There are different, different confessions of faith. Yeah, but we, we are agreed with... with and, and here we have, in our church, we have a wonderful history with confessional churches, especially... Uh, PCA churches uh, on the mountain, um, Wayside and now Mountain Fellowship, uh, other churches as well, Signal Prez a di in a different denomination. But uh, here's, here's uh, well, part of this series is, is reminiscing. I'm, I'm going to skip a little bit. I'm, 
uh, I'm going to reminisce for a moment. Most of you know the story I'm about to tell you. Uh, the former pastor at Wayside Presbyterian was uh, Marshall St. John, Dr. St. John. And uh, when Marshall and I met, we enjoyed an immediate connection, which grew. And over the years, we teased each other mercilessly because he was a Westminster Confession guy, and I was not. Uh, I had been invited to consider teaching a professor at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis years before, but had said no because I couldn't sign the Statement of Faith, the Westminster Confession. So I, and I'd looked at it pretty closely at that time. And um, uh, Marshall, uh, we, our, our churches, Wayside and, and Sudan Mountain Bible Church, used to have Easter sunrise services together, and then we'd have breakfast together uh, until we got a little too big for that. And at one point, Marshall approached me early on about having our churches joined together as one church. And uh, uh, in order for us to remain one church, it would still have to be under the PCA, and we'd have to affirm the Westminster Confession of Faith, which, which I could not. Um, but over the years, we continued to be close friends. He played the cello in the Chattanooga Symphony and uh, was teaching me about classical music because I knew nothing about it. So he was sort of discipling me in classical music. Okay, get this CD now and get it by that conductor and so forth, and then we talked about it. Uh, we thought we'd be crotchety old pastors discussing new theology books over coffee at Hardy's until his cancer came about seven or eight years ago. And uh, I was sitting at his bedside not long before the end, and he asked me to conduct his funeral. And uh, he said, Gary, would you conduct my funeral? And then he paused and he said, in Chinese. His wife was Chinese. That's one of those times when you say, do you believe this? Do you really believe this? And I did. Um, and Signal Mountain Presbyterian graciously opened their doors with more seating capacity, and it was filled up. Uh, I just love the body of Christ. I love it. And then God brought wonderful pastors to Wayside, Brian Cosby and Chuck Barrett, and now Jimmy Davis is at Mountain Fellowship, and there are other good churches up here. I love the body of Christ. So thankful for what God has done in these churches. And by the way, Marshall, Marshall thought I was theologically inconsistent. I knew he was theologically inconsistent. And I'm so glad we are saved by grace through faith and not by our theological consistency. We disagreed about the Westminster Confession, but, buddy, we stood arm in arm on the Apostles' Creed and all of Scripture, and I will miss my friend until I see him again. And we stand together and say, Jesus is Lord. This we believe. Now, we don't subscribe to any particular confession. We, we do have a statement of faith. It's a minimalist statement of faith. It doesn't include all we believe, but it includes much of what we believe. 
I'm just going to read it to you very quickly. There is one God, the creator and preserver of all things. He exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, uh, by the way, I've, this is what's in our, all the things that we put out. But I found the original document in a file uh, two weeks ago from 1986. We started the church in late 85, and this is a few months later in 1986. And this is the statement of faith that we put forth for consideration. We've only altered it in two places. Uh, it was adopted with two alterations. So this is the first statement. This is about God the Father. The 66 canonical books of the Bible is originally given. Here's the first change. We changed that from written to given, which makes perfect sense, comprise God's word written, and hence are free from error. They are our sole authority for what we are to believe and how we are to live. This is the doctrine of Scripture. We affirm Jesus' view of the Bible that Scripture cannot be broken. The inerrancy, the clarity, and the sufficiency of Scripture, which means also the implication for us is that we follow normal or literal interpretation unless the context suggests otherwise. We believe in the Word of God over us that that's authoritative. It's not my feelings that are authoritative or even my feelings about what I think the Holy Spirit's saying that's authoritative. It's the Word of God that's authoritative. Mankind created in the image of God fell into sin in Adam and is now sinful both by nature and by choice, the outcome which, of which is eternal death. From this condition we can be saved only by the grace of God through faith on the basis of the work of the Son, by the agency of the Holy Spirit. The eternal Son became incarnate by being born of the Virgin Mary. He is both true God and true man. He lived a sinless life and died on the cross as our substitute, shedding his blood for the remission of our sins. He rose bodily from the dead and will return again bodily to complete his saving work to consummate the plan of God. As believers who have turned to God by faith in Jesus Christ, we are accountable to God for a, living a life separated from sin and characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. It is our responsibility to contribute by word and deed to the mission of the church. Now, this is from 1986. This is about the church, and it got changed. Whoops. It got changed, uh, stretched out a little bit, and a little bit more precise. The church, I'm going to read the second bullet. The church is a living organism comprised of all believers in Jesus Christ. We are to engage in the building of the body, through, Jesus, through a body of Christ, through the ministry of the Word, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which we're about to do, and the practice of baptism. This focus on worship and fellowship within our local church should result in a visible testimony to the surrounding community. That's the second change that was made from 1986, just those two changes. At the time of God's choosing, the bodies of all persons will experience resurrection, believers to a state of eternal joy in the presence of God, and unbelievers to eternal punishment. So we don't include things about the sign gifts or tongues, uh, second coming details, Calvinism, women in ministry, infant baptism. Not that we don't have strong opinions about those things, but there are good Christians who disagree on some of those things. We focus on what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 is of primary importance. And these are the things that we ask people to align with if they want to join Signal Mountain Bible Church as a member. So we love the creeds of the church. 
how they point to Jesus, how they protect doctrine. And as I said earlier, you don't have to affirm the creeds to be a Christian, but you can't deny them and be a Christian. And after reciting the creeds, we usually close with the statement, this we believe. And my question is, can you say that? Is this what you believe? Because without that minimal faith that confesses Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, no one can be saved, much less partake of the Lord's Supper. So I want us to prepare for the Lord's table by reading one of the biblical creeds together. And as we read one of these uh, creeds together, uh, just I'm going to ask the men to come forward uh, uh, as we recite this. So let's read this together from Philippians chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God...